Hello, stackers. My name is Rhett. I'm the Dungeon Master for Stack of Dice, and with me again is... Thane, once again, who plays Peter Greyhawk. And what we're going to do this time around is we're going to talk about how to make the game of Dungeons & Dragons your own. Because one of the great things about this game is it is completely flexible. Completely. Yeah, and even the game itself recognizes this. And in fact, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, we came across a paragraph on the very first page, really, that lays out this concept. And I'd like to have Thane read that paragraph. What page is it on? It's on page four. It says, The D&D rules help you and the other players have a good time, but the rules aren't in charge. You're the DM, and you are in charge of the game. That said, your goal isn't to slaughter the adventurers, but to create a campaign world that revolves around their actions and decisions and to keep your players coming back for more. If you're lucky, the events of your campaign will echo in the memories of your players long after the final game session is concluded. Yeah, and really what I take from that is if the rules are getting in the way of the fun, then ditch the rules. On Reddit just this last week, there was a post in one of the D&D subreddits about how somebody is going through the Lost Minds of Fandelver book And he was getting overwhelmed by chapter two, where I think it lays out all the different guilds or or whatever they're called and all the options for things that could happen in town. He's like, I'm not going to be able to keep all this in memory. And so others said neat things about how to organize notes and that kind of thing. So that's important. But I also made sure to comment, listen, it's your game. If it's not going to work for you, there's no requirement for you to put it in. If it's too complex, make it easy. And if you have new players who have never been to Dungeons & Dragons, they'll never know. (laughs) One of the things that I stressed in that comment was that's the beauty of having a DM screen. They don't know what's in the book. They don't know what's written down. And so if you don't put it in the game, they'll never know. And so the first rule or the first thing that we wanted to make sure of in making the game your own is truly make it yours. Don't feel like you're bound to what the book says. No no Wizards of the Coast employees are going to come crashing through your windows if you leave out a section or a side quest or <laughs> anything like that. So I just <laughs> want to make sure that we understand. Yeah, when you look through these books, like I remember I kind of gave up on Princes of the Apocalypse because oh, there yeah. was just so much stuff going on yeah. in the book. And I, I just kind of threw up my hands because I didn't have time to sit down and read page by page everything. What I took from that was you don't have to do everything. If it feels overwhelming, then get rid of it. They put it in a lot of detail for the people who really want to go over, uh, you know, all out on their worlds, which is okay. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. It's it's neat to have a whole lot going on in the world if you really want to convey a sense of real bustling life. But that's not for everyone. And so you don't have to add all that stuff in. By all means, use the books that Wizards of the Coast publishes, but if you're finding that they feel too restrictive, don't be afraid to make up your own stuff. For instance, that's I, I feel much more comfortable DMing a game in Vardalon than I do in the Forgotten Realms. And that's one of the joys of DMing and creating my own world. I can make it whatever I want it to be. And that's not to say I couldn't do that with the established stuff, but I guess my fear is those who know the Forgotten Realms would say, oh, what? No, that's not the way that is. Yeah. And so in Vardalon, it's my world. (laughs) And so if I say it, that's what it is. I created my own world, so you can't criticize me. That's the whole reason why we went homebrew. The entire reason. (laughs) To be quite forthright about it, I really do feel 
a lot more free and able to take whatever direction I oh, want. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I actually uh, much rather prefer our own setting because I think Forgotten Realms is pretty cool and all, but I like doing our own thing. Yeah, it feels it feels more of our own than just kind of borrowing. Yeah, Thane, you've DM'd some at school uh, and with other friends. Yeah, how have you made the game your own? Well, um, <laughs> my main my main secret is just to basically paraphrase whatever you read in the books. So back in my sophomore year, I had a pretty good group of guys that we played Dungeons & Dragons with during lunch. And so I got them through Minds of Fandelver and then started doing Prince of the Apocalypse. And then halfway through, I too also threw in the towel and then just started setting them on some kind of interdimensional planes hopping adventure, which is pretty cool. Uh, turned into a bit of a pirate-themed uh, swashbuckling thing for a mm-hmm. little bit. But anyway. And is that what your players wanted? Is that kind of what where they were headed anyway? So were you, were you adjusting your dungeon mastering to the direction that the players seemed to be going, or was it just that's the direction you chose to take them? I would have been if there was a direction they were going in the first <laughs> place. Bear in mind, we were all sophomores who had been cooped up in classrooms all day. So yeah. we got to lunch, and so most of it was just joking around, randomly fighting things. I, I got a bit of a lucky break because I didn't have to really focus on too much of a narrative. As long as I kept on giving them fights to uh, <laughs> and just really like spicing things up, they were happy. Good. And of course, a, a nice hack and slash adventure will not, you know, it, most of the times won't go wrong because adventurers love the excuse to roll their dice. Yeah. Good. But yeah, so uh, when it came to really preparing for games beforehand, I would just read through the material and then just kind of paraphrase. If something seemed too complex or too intricate, I would just kind of simplify it. Really, I just prepared for whoever my audience was. You know, We didn't really want a whole big overarching story for the most part, so I gave them that. Good. And it helped that you knew these guys. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Definitely. you were same grade, same same group of friends and everything, so you knew kind of where their tastes lay already. And yeah, that makes it easy to to build an adventure to their likes. Yeah. And so another great Dungeon Master tip is if you know your players, and in fact, it may not go amiss to ask them at the outset, maybe in that session zero that everyone loves to talk about, what do you want to get out of this game? What are you looking for? What gets you into Dungeons and Dragons and what gets your attention? For some people, puzzles are great. They love solving puzzles. They love that. For others, they'd rather jab a a foresighter in their eye than (laughs) go through another puzzle. (laughs) And so they, they would much prefer some other aspect of the game. Know your players and try and build your adventures to cater to that. In the last game that I played with some friends in an off podcast game, it ended up being an escape room. And it was a lot of fun. First of all, we had to realize we were in an escape room. Uh, The DM did not just tell us, hey, you're in an escape room. So the first thing was realizing we were locked into a room and we had to get out. But once we realized that, things started to really click. And um, there's a great, great podcast called Escape This Podcast. The game master actually walks through a an escape room per show, and they're very well done. When I first heard of the podcast, I was very skeptical. Oh, this is going to be hard to do right. Well, she does it right. So escape this podcast. We'll throw that in the show notes. 
and it's very, very enjoyable. That was fun for me, but I could tell there were a couple players who they were just really sitting back and letting a handful of us do the work. Just waiting to get to the next fight? Uh, not so much that, but puzzles just aren't their thing. Yeah. But I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> So again, know your players, know their interests, and then try and cater to all their interests in different ways. That's another great rule of thumb. Another way that dungeon masters can make things their own, first of all, there is a great impulse to want to make your thing stand apart from everyone else's. And I think every dungeon master who creates a brand new world feels this at some point. I don't want this to feel like the Lord of the Rings, or I don't want this to feel like Conan or whatever. I want my world to feel different. And so part of the joy in that is it is a lot of fun to try and come up with ways to make your world different. Uh, in another game that Thane and I are playing in on Sunday evenings online, the elves actually kind of look like the creatures from Avatar, which I found a little strange at first, but it definitely makes them feel different. And so now I'm imagining something very different from what I see depicted in the books whenever we're talking with an elf in-game. As a note, it is also very useful to draw on elements from pre-existing universes. Like like with Lord of the Rings, it's popular for a reason. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of really cool aspects to the Lord of the Rings universe. Countless others like Conan and, and Narnia that really draw the attention of the reader, the audience, and so. Yeah. And by tapping into that, sure, you've got a kind of like a ready-made foundation for your players to understand. Lots of people have seen the Lord of the Rings movie, so when you say elf or dwarf, they're not having to come up with a mental picture on their own. They're guided by popular culture, by the movies, and that makes it a lot easier for them to get into the game. So by all means, tap into existing stuff. And by all means, do your own thing. That's right. Do both at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> it's not hard. Come on, people. <laughs> it Actually, it can be. Oh, goodness. It is so hard. I have, I have been so dry on good homebrew ideas for the past couple of weeks. Like sometimes I'll just like sit down and try and make a, some kind of adventure of some sort. Nothing comes. Well, that's when it's really helpful to have somebody else to talk with about it. Yep. And I'd be happy to work with you on that, to try and come up with some ideas, maybe even just a seed of an idea that you could be like, oh, I know what to do with that. And off you go. Because I've seen that happen before. I remember one evening we sat down and we just talked about possible adventure hooks. And they ended up all being kind of eerie and dark. I don't know if it was close to Halloween or something, but... One of them was a little girl just sitting by herself in a field with her back to the road. And then that, that was the whole hook. You know, no idea where it would go from there, but I just, that one stands out clearly in my mind as a possible thing to grab players' attention and maybe spin off a whole quest. Oh, no, I'm, I'm just sitting out here. I'd like to clear my heads. Thanks for asking, though. <laughs> So really the big part of this episode, the, really, the thing I really wanted to bear down on is in order to make the game your own, there are some neat things you can do with tinkering with races and classes. And Thane was kind enough to point out to me, I, I don't know how many of you have this same confession. I have not actually sat down to read the Dungeon Master's Guide. I've done, <gasps> I've done very little with it. How dare you? Yeah. 
Um, and I know it's made to create ideas in Dungeon Masters, but I just, I've never really taken the time to sit down with it. But he pointed out chapter eight, which is called what? The Dungeon Masters Workshop. Yeah. Or something like that. I, I haven't checked. Yeah, that's, that's what it's called. And in particular, the races and classes are covered on pages 285 to 287-ish. And there's just some neat, neat ideas here. So after covering how to create new spells and create magic items, uh, on page 285, there's creating new character options. And the first of these is creating a race or sub-race. And it just goes through bullet points that a dungeon master should consider. Why does my campaign need the race to be playable? What does the race look like? How would I describe the race's culture? Where do the members of this race live? Are there interesting conflicts built into the race's history and culture that make the race compelling from a storytelling standpoint? What is the race's relationship to the other playable races? What classes and backgrounds are well-suited to members of the race? What are the race's signature traits? In the case of a new sub-race, what sets it apart from the other sub-races of the parent race? And so there's continuing information that gives you all sorts of things and examples of how to create sub-races and... Uh, how to create the race, how to modify classes. Yeah, they kind of walk you through with the Eladrin and the Asimar. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to other things that kind of fall outside of what in particular we are talking about. But I just wanted to be sure to point out if you're looking for ways to either modify an existing class or race or create new ones, the Dungeon Master's Guide has your back. And it's pretty well defined. And again, if you don't like what you see there, or if you have ideas different from what you see here, by all means, pursue it. Try it out. But what I recommend is, uh, if it's not according to these guidelines, you might want to try some play testing first to make sure that it's going to be balanced and fair. Oh, yeah. One of my gripes about Skyrim, <laughs> I, I've been playing through that again recently, and I specifically chose an Argonian, the, the lizard people, because they have the ability to breathe underwater. And I thought, hey, that's great. I, I can go anywhere I want underwater and I don't have to worry about it. I've found a couple of magic items that confer the ability to breathe underwater. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why? It kind of took away the, the reason I picked the class in the first place. And the thing is, there's just not a whole bunch underwater for in, in Skyrim. Like it would, be, it would be cooler if there were more chests or more just like locations that were only accessible by way of like extended underwater time. I've found a fair share of stuff underwater. It's just, it doesn't feel as special when yeah. the magic items do that. And I've not found any. So the, my other option was Khajiit. I wanted to play one of the cat people because they can see in the dark. I've not found any magic items that confer that ability. So I'm thinking, why didn't I just do that? <laughs> That's when you get one of the mods that allows you to change your race mid-game. <laughs> yeah. So um, as a word of caution, if you're going to go off script from what the DM's guide says about modifying or creating races and classes, be sure to give some time to maybe do some special play or some testing to make sure that it's not going to break anything. Yeah. And really, the genesis for this idea, the reason I thought about talking about this this week is because as Thane and I were planning Vardalon at the outset, you know, we were first thinking about where the game would start. And I thought, well, the dwarves. Meredith wanted to play a dwarf because she liked, you know, maybe their sturdiness and the fact that they had some abilities that fell in line with what she was interested in. I wanted to make the dwarves special. I wanted to make them have a feeling, you know, obviously 
people have a mental image of dwarves, thanks to, again, Lord of the Rings and other movies. But I wanted the dwarves in Vardalon to have some new aspects. And so the idea of them calling their minds delves, that was something that I came up with specifically for this game. But the other concept was the first home. And really, the first home was my thinking through how would dwarves go about digging a mine? I mean, you don't just walk up to the side of a mountain and start using a pick against it, and a day later you've got something livable. That's not how that works. So this isn't Minecraft. (laughs) And so uh, what I wanted to do was think through, okay, a contingent of dwarves has been prospecting, looking for a good place to start a new delve. It's going to take time to find the right dig spot. You know, obviously, you have to take a lot of safety precautions into account. You know, you need to have proper bracing. You need to have uh, maybe, I don't know, (laughs) I'm not a miner myself. And so I'm not sure of exactly everything that goes into that. But the important thing is, as the dwarves approach where they think they want to start their delve, as I thought about it step by step, okay, they arrive, they encamp somewhere. They're going to have to live somewhere while they get started. So why not have them start building a first home? Uh, I didn't have a name for it at the outset. It was just a play, an encampment or a place for them to live. But then as I got to thinking about it, I realized, hey, these are dwarves. They don't do things by halves, and they're naturally suspicious of other people. And so what would their instinct be? Well, I think it would be to create a fortified encampment from which they could work. Maybe that's where they would store their tools, give themselves a defensible position, and make it easy for them to work in those initial stages. And so what I wanted was that concept of a place where dwarves traditionally start. And then from there, I got to thinking, okay, they get started on their delve. They get in enough where they can start to live in the delve itself. And then they start operations in the delve. They start doing things. So what happens to this encampment when they're in there in the delve? Well, obviously, if they let it sit, it can fall to ruin, which does not sound dwarvish. Or other people could come and take it and use it against them. Well, obviously, that's not going to happen. So what I thought would be interesting is if there was a small contingent, like a rotational basis, where dwarves from the Delve would come out and live, take over in the first home for a period of time. And then the group that was there would go back into the Delve and do stuff. And so if you have a large enough clan, you can just keep that rotation going. And and it would be maybe one month for a group of however many. And then as that group is approaching the end of the month, the next group comes and replaces them. Basically guard duty for the entrance keep. Exactly. Up to this point, my thought was, okay, it's it's an encampment. It's a fortified encampment. But then I got to thinking, well, that doesn't sound very exciting. And so I thought, well, they would consider it home and it's their first home. So let's just call it a first home. And so the place where Tira and Finolf talk at the beginning of the stack of dice run is in the first home. In my thinking, in my planning, the dwarves continue to keep it up because if something happens in the delve, as it did at Ironstag Delve, they have a place to retreat to. And because it's been maintained, because it's been kept up, they don't have to go through this lengthy process of making everything right again. And so those were kinds of the things that I was thinking about. Do you have anything to add or any other touches you want to put on that? Not particularly. I mean... Those sound like things I would do as well. I mean, that that just makes sense to me. 
Although I don't know if I would think that deeply on it. (laughs) (laughs) The the more I thought about it, the clearer it became. Yeah. And now it feels pretty natural. Oh, yeah. It just makes sense. I mean, set up a place and then you start digging. And so the great thing about this is I didn't actually modify the race at all. Not not really. But by putting flavor into it, Mm -hmm. now what would you expect if you visited dwarves in another area? A first home. Yeah, something similar. And so uh, I see it as being something of a, almost like a a dwarven tradition. What is your first home like? Well, here's what we have to offer. And so maybe it becomes a matter of bragging rights. So when dwarves come from afar, they want to see where this illustrious mine started. Mm -hmm. They go to the first home. Yeah, it's it's kind of of like a uh, way of saying... This is what our ancestors were like, you know, it, when you have when you have a couple of years on a certain delve and a couple of generations have gone by, that first home is a is kind of like a time capsule really. Helps you really tell um what building techniques the those dwarves were working with, what tools they had, how how many people, you know, depending on how, the size and the in the strength of the first home. And for that matter, it could almost become something of a museum. Maybe they keep yeah. some of those relics yeah. in a special chamber. Perhaps. I would kind of expect that uh, relics of a certain importance would be kept deeper inside where they could be safer. But yeah. Yeah. And maybe also because it is the world's view of the Delve, because they don't just let anybody down there, they want their first home to look magnificent. Mm-hmm. So maybe over time, maybe some of their favorite finds, whether it's a rock full of a certain eye-catching ore, or maybe they found gems or jewels down there, or maybe they have smelted down some of the precious metals that they have found and used those to spice up the appearance of their first home. There, there could be a lot of fun to be had with that. And again, the beauty of this is I didn't tinker with stats at all. I didn't add anything. I didn't take anything away. Or really with like the physique of the dwarf either like they're still the same old short people with their beards and their axes and their hammers and all that Mm -hmm. and so what i was thinking is first of all next week what i want to do is another hour to hour and a half writing challenge for myself and come up with some more lore that describes the founding of the first home and so look forward to that next week but i thought maybe we could spend just a few minutes thane to take another race and figure out how we could flavor it for a new world. I think to do that, though, we need to come up with what that world is. All right. So let's just kind of wing it. Mm. And again, the Dungeon Master's Guide comes to the rescue because there is an entire chapter, actually pages 9 through 41 of the Dungeon Master's Guide in chapter 1, talks about how to build a world of your own. Now, we're, we're actually just going to kind of make up our own without going through all 30 pages of this. Hmm. What would you see a new world being like? You want to do like an aquatic world? Sure. Okay. So let's do kind of a water world theme where basically the entire world is, or most of the world, like the vast majority, is covered in water. So we've got this planet that's, let's say, 98%. Sur- uh, surface is 98% water, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so immediately my mind jumps to some kind of subaquatic race sure. of uh, water-breathing people. 
which immediately uh, implies that they have gills or some other form of breathe of taking in water, like breathing with water. Okay. Uh, they're streamlined to allow them to move quickly in the water. Uh huh. Maybe even fins. Oh yeah, F- fins, uh, flippers. Okay. All the all the like. So merfolk come to mind. Mm-hmm. Maybe what if we made some aquatic elves? Okay. All right, so our elves that live in this water, what is it that flavors them and makes them specially suited for this kind of life? They don't have hair. They have, like... Anemones? Ooh. Okay. Anemones? <laughs> Anemones? Don't hurt yourself, kid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and so maybe that's how they eat, too. Okay. They just kind of filter feed? Yeah, so the, the anemones on their heads are actually constantly collecting phytoplankton or whatever, tiny things, and that's one chief means of sustenance. Okay. So maybe they don't have they don't even have mouths because like what, what do they Ooh. even need what do they need those for? And so they communicate telepathically or by causing vibrations in the water. <laughs> uh, and something else that came to mind is what if the world was kind of flip flopped upside down? So it's an aquatic world, but what if here and there there are pockets where you can go up, so you swim down deep, and then you come up underneath, and suddenly you're in like this gigantic air bubble. So mm. places where Earth has formed underneath the surface of the water, and so you have kind of like vast caverns or things like that, where maybe if you're an aquatic race, to go up in there actually causes difficulties. Interesting. But allows you to play some of the more traditional types of characters. Oh, Yeah. But so then, maybe you have like these vast underground, like underwater cavern cities. Yes. Yep. Oh, that could be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, with just a few minutes of talking, we've come up with a world. We've come up with possible race flavoring. Uh, obviously, with this, there'd be a bit more to it than just flavor. Uh, there would be some tinkering with mechanics. And how would water travel be handled? Because clearly, with most of traditional life being already underwater, just in little air pockets, traditional sailing ships are kind of out of the picture. Are they, though? Because maybe you could have land species who have made it up to the surface. They've heard tales of this sun, and they want to go find it. But when they get up, all they find is water, so they have to... Maybe there's, like, large platforms. Drifting cities? Yeah, that's another idea out of water world where they have communities that have banded together on the surface of the water, which of course, when it gets stormy becomes oh, an yeah. issue. Yeah. But, you know, given enough ingenuity, maybe you could, and enough size of these things, maybe you could create something that would either hover above the water or maybe anchor on some rock that's close enough to the surface, something like that. Okay. To keep it up more out of danger. And what about, you know, obviously in our world today, we have lots and lots of sailor stories mm-hmm. about the mysterious things that go on on the ocean. Ghost ships and sea monsters. Yeah, and- exactly. Uh, maybe it's the opposite for an aquatic world. They have horror stories of what it's like above the surface. Mm. <laughs> that could be a lot of fun too. Creatures that fly in the air above the water. They, they swim in the air. <laughs> That, and I mean, you consider what the floor of the ocean is like, Mm -hmm. and maybe you have places where, that are considered safe zones, because down in this, in the cold depths of the ocean, you suddenly have volcanic vents, and so 
some races gravitate toward that because it's warmer water and it's deep enough that most people or things can't go. And so you have some possibilities there. Sounds cool. Yeah. So we need to create a new campaign setting. Yeah. Another podcast. <laughs> Dice of stack. <laughs> do you have any other thoughts on how to make Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, actually, I do. <laughs> I do. Uh, I wanted to be sure to say this. Players, if you're not a dungeon master, but you're a player listening to our podcast, please understand that you can actually take the initiative to do this as well. It's not entirely up to the dungeon master to flavor things. If you have an idea for how you want your character to be different from other campaign settings or other worlds or something, feel free to float it by your DM. Uh, maybe working together, you can come up with a way that it could work. Yeah, I am. Um, in a lot of games, I, I traditionally play humans because I, I just think they're sadly misunderrepresented. Underrepresented. I don't know why I said that. Anyway, um, sadly, I think they're just underrepresented because the people always try and play tieflings and dragonborns and half forks and gnomes and the like in order to really try and show some kind of individuality to their character. But I think you can do that perfectly well with a human because I, uh, in, in every game I play, I try and really make them different, give them different kind of cultures and like, yeah, sure. So, uh, uh, as an example, I'm going to talk about a character who is human, who is not my character. Uh, Dad here in our online game on Sundays plays a character, uh, plays a human warlock who kind of grew up on his own. He his patron is an archfey, and so he's he's primarily nature based, which makes sense for being someone who's kind of grown up on his own out in the wilderness. And the name that he goes by is Hay, which was funny when we were all being introduced to him because we asked him what his name was, and he said Hay. And we were like, um, sorry, <laughs> come again. But yeah, it's, it's really cool because uh, he's also just got this real childlike innocence where every everything is just so wonderful to him. And it's it's fantastic. I would give Hay a big hug if I could, but I cannot. <laughs> what you're getting at, Thane, is that it doesn't take a whole lot to make a human character memorable and different from all the other human characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a disfigurement. Maybe your character's missing an arm. Oh, yeah. That'd be a pretty cool thing. Prosthetic arm. Secure Shadow's Die Not choice. even that. Maybe just you've learned to cope with it. Maybe maybe some of your attacks are at disadvantage, but maybe it confers other abilities. Who mm. knows? I mean, there there are, again, working with your DM, there are ways that you could flavor your character to make it different. And so what I encourage players to do is find ways to think differently about your characters, whether it's in the race or the class or a combination of the two. Put your creativity to use. Don't leave all the world building to the DM because players have just as much responsibility in how living the world feels. Dungeons and Dragons is a cooperative storytelling experience. Yeah. It's not just the dungeon master. Yeah. And so by doing that, you're not only lightening your DM's load, but you're also saying, hey, I want a part of this too. I want to take an active role in helping to build this game world. And I think what you'll find is that it becomes a much more satisfying thing. So by saying, this is what I want to try, and working with your DM to make sure that it's going to fit, I think you'll find, players, that this is just a much more fun way to take part in the game. You have anything else to add, Thane? Any other ways that you know of to make the game your own? Not really, no. Okay. 
Well, stackers, what about you? What do you think? Do you have ways of making Dungeons and Dragons interesting to you? If so, why don't you share them with us? We'd love to hear from you. We have social media presence on Instagram and Twitter at stackodice. And we have an email address, stack.o.dice at gmail.com. We would dearly love to hear from you. Also, if you've not yet taken a chance during this quarantine-induced separation from everything to rate and review us on iTunes, we sure would love that too. By giving us a rating and maybe even leaving a short review of what you think about the show, you not only help us to understand that we're on the right track, but you also help make it easier for others to find us. Because the more ratings and reviews we have, the higher we'll move on the charts, and that really helps us to stand out. So if you haven't yet, take a moment to do that. Tell a friend about us if you haven't already. If you know of other people who love Dungeons and Dragons and are just looking for ways to pass time during this coronavirus period, maybe this will help them in some way, and we sure do love to hear from our stackers. So again, next week, look forward to a lore segment uh, that I'm going to do as a writing challenge, probably an hour and a half. And uh, it will be about the first home, about the establishment of the first home of Ironstag Delve. And I'm really looking forward to it because I have no idea what it's going to be about. But I think it'll be a lot of fun to put together to help flesh out my picture, my mental image of the first home concept. And we'll see where it takes us. So as always, thank you for listening. Hit us up if you can. And we'll see you here again next time at Stack of Dice. I shall adjustinate my microphone. <laughs> Is yours adjustinated also? Hello.